Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hi everyone, Bryce Merriman here, and welcome to our first Homeland Podcast. Over the coming weeks and months, we're going to be using this podcast as a forum to explore the intersection of homelessness and public spaces. To do so, we're going to be engaging in conversation with a whole range of people whose work and lives deal with these issues, from human services providers to public space managers, and from people experiencing homelessness to businesses and residents who feel impacted by it. These first few podcasts will focus on homelessness as it's manifested in my city of Seattle, but we plan to engage voices from around the country and are always looking for new people to talk with. If you have someone we should speak with, please don't hesitate to contact us at homelandlab at gmail.com. For this inaugural conversation, the podcast goes behind the dais to understand what it's like for elected officials who must balance constituent concerns while looking for solutions to homelessness. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Seattle City Council member Sally Bagshaw. Sally, thank you so much for sitting out down today. Um, when I, when, the reason I wanted to talk to you was because, first of all, your advocacy for a great public realm. And you and I have uh, worked together to increase parks funding, neighborhood greenways, um, downtown parks. You know, those are wonderful achievements. But what I've been interested to see is in your new role as the committee chair for the council's human services and public health committee, um, really an embrace of trying to protect the most vulnerable who are living in, in our city. And I'm wondering if you could just spend a minute talking about the connection between those two things, if you see one, or if those are kind of two different areas for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, thank you, Bryce, and thank you for asking these questions. So I chair this committee, but in the process, I have learned so much about the impact that our city is having on individuals who are vulnerable. Simultaneously, I've learned that the people who are vulnerable and they're living in tents and not living up to their best selves are really impacting our neighborhoods. So it's that intersection of bringing people together to solve the problem that has been of greatest interest to me. Clearly, we want people to be healthy. We want people to be inside because we know that Housing First works. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a certain amount of responsibility that we have as city leaders to everybody else who's living in the city. Sure, sure. So take me a little bit behind the curtain for what you see in terms of what's coming into your email box, what's coming in during public comment. Like, are there there two constituencies or two, a cleaving between how the public understands this issue? That's a very good question. So if you can imagine a continuum with the folks on one end who are saying anybody who is outside in a tent is so vulnerable that the city has no right to try to move them into another place. So I would consider that some of my very good friends um, in ACLU and Columbia Legal Services as an example. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Um, on the other extreme is a group uh, called the Neighborhood Safety Alliance. Now, they will say right things. They will say that they're compassionate and they really want to help solve problems. And if you take them at their word, then you're trying to bridge that divide between the people that are saying, we really want people to be allowed to stay and be left alone, to the other end, which is, we're really trying to find safe places for people, but I don't want them in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So those are the, the extremes. So over the past years, I've been bringing people together so I can first understand really what's behind all this, but then see if we can find solutions. And the solutions that we know is to get people into housing to get stable first. And the continuum that I'm seeing in terms of housing, if you start at the very, very one edge of this continuum, it's people who are outside and are really struggling. What we know is that people who are homeless are extremely vulnerable. And I have not yet met somebody who have said, I really like being out here in the wet and cold and the cement and the rain um, in the middle of winter. People will say, I want to come inside, but I want to come inside under terms and conditions that I can live with. So as example, um, over the years, and I'm, like, I'm looking back at only 12 to 15 years, our city has come so far because 15 years ago, we wouldn't even allow encampments on church property. We did not want to see encampments anywhere. Tents were anathema to neighbors. But we also acknowledge under church's constitutional rights that they can provide space and feed people, that they can provide housing and shelter for people. So ultimately, we got our acts together. I mean, it took some legal cases to do it. Mm -hmm. But we said, you, as long as you're associated with a faith institution, can create some kind of managed encampment. Um, now, I don't think there are many of us who would want to live in a tent for very long, particularly without running water, without electricity, without warmth. It just isn't a satisfactory place to live. So that's where in the continuum we started looking at, okay, if you think of the other end of the continuum, which is stable shelter, what's in the middle? Well, that's been the work that Barb Poppy brought, and that's where our Pathways Home is leading us, is we want shelter, we want stable shelter, we want places people to be able to get inside and have the services that they need to get at a, to a point where they can move up and on. Um, I'm not saying up and out. I'm saying up and on with their lives. So over this past year, we have worked with our friends um, at ACLU and Columbia Legal Services to say we are not going to just sweep people away. We have seen that um, in our own city, but we have seen it in other cities with disastrous results. If you're sweeping people without providing them a place to go or a place to be or a better stable, all you're doing is chasing them around. Sure. That's all the police are doing. Neighbors aren't happy. And seriously, vulnerable people are just more vulnerable if that's what we're doing. Right. So we've created a program where we're trying to find good, stable places for people to be sanctioned encampments where they can go and there's running water and there's electricity and there's food and there's neighbors and on the other end really trying to increase the supply of housing and units where people can go and be safe and stable and permanent housing right well and and i think that that's a really that framework of a continuum is, is a really useful one um and it seems like 
one of the areas where Seattle has been really successful is piloting and testing things out along that continuum. Are there other successful things that you've, you're see, starting yeah. to see some results on? Yeah, very much so. Um, I would like to pilot more things. I want you to know <laughs> that I am always impatient. I never think we do enough fast enough, but we've done some really good things. And I mentioned to a group last night that we have done more in the last two years than in my 40 years of professional life before that in terms of what people are seeing. And I believe we're starting to turn the corner where people go, ah, I get that. We can be really effective. So here's some examples. So our 24-7 shelters, up until a year ago, I had never understood that shelters could truly be 24-7. Even in our own city, what we have done for years is we would open the door. Here in City Hall, we would open the doors for people to come in. They could come in at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. And then we were rolling them back out on the street between 6 and 7 a.m. So then what? They're schlepping their stuff. They're walking around the streets. They are tagged with, hey, I'm homeless because I'm carrying all my stuff or I'm pushing a cart. And then they have to queue up again. So their entire day, they are trying to find a stable place to be. Businesses have said, we don't want to see people with shopping carts. We don't want to see people panhandling. We don't want, and if you'll forgive me for saying this, there was a lot of, we don't want to see those people in my neighborhood. Now, the fact of the matter is, I think we're really turning the corner for people to realize those aren't those people. Those are us. Mm -hmm. Those are folks that had a home, but they lost their job. Those are people who had a rental unit, but the rent was raised so much that they couldn't go back. Those are that's our brother who got who fell on hard times or got addicted to drugs or alcohol and couldn't get out without help. I do believe that we're beginning to see these are people that should be considered our neighbors, and we as a community, we're all better off when we are all better off. Mm. And if we can help people who are currently suffering we can really make conditions better for all of us. So the 24-7 shelters like the navigation shelter or navigation center, first one I saw was down in San Francisco. And then I learned that other cities have taken that and even done more. Hackensack, New Jersey, as an example. Hackensack, New Jersey's facility is run by a woman I met last year named Julia Orlando. She is stunning. And I urge you to reach out and talk to her because she was recognized by the USICH as someone who has solved um, homelessness for people who are unattached, Mm -hmm. people who don't have families, veterans for um, single men in particular, that just, I mean, think about that concept, being able to solve homelessness in a city that's not a lot different from Seattle, and it is a bedroom community of New York City. So what they did was to really build on this 24-7 shelter idea. So people come in, they get stabilized, they can come in any time of day or night. They're not locked out, and they don't have to roll out their stuff in the morning. And because they're stabilized, case managers can be there. They can talk to the case managers to find out what do you need. What are the services that will help you get stable? So we're emulating that. We will have our own run by uh, DESC that will open up later this summer 
we're going to have a second one up at uh, the First Presbyterian Church up on First Hill that'll be run by Compass Housing. Both of them will have up to 100 uh, places for people, and they are addressing the, the three main barriers for people to come inside. They're called the three Ps, partners, possessions, and pets. So what's been successful? Well, the concept that bringing people inside, getting stable, with the idea that you're not there forever. You're going to be there maybe a month, maybe only a week, but we're going to find places for you to be. Um, the idea of having lockers in the shelters. Seriously, I have worked on this for years, and absolutely I was running into a stone wall for years. What people say is, if I can lock my st stuff up and then come back at night and it'll still be there, it's revolutionary. People are afraid of losing the very few things that they've got. So in our shelters now, we put money in last year's budget that shelters, even if they're not 24-7, can get lockers so people can leave their belongings and have them safe. That is a small but a mighty detail. Um, and then we're seeing neighborhoods join forces and say, we want to help. Here's what else has been successful. Um, we have a managed encampment, tents, in Inner Bay. And it's run by Cheryl Wheel. If you've ever gone and seen how they work in their shelter, how they self-govern, the, the tools that they bring in, and in many cases, these are folks that have been um, homeless for quite a while. But in this community, they develop that sense of respect. And because they keep their place clean, the community, the, the broader neighborhood, people who are housed are coming in now and saying, how can we help? Mm -hmm. So people are bringing in sleeping bags, they're bringing in blankets, they're bringing in opportunities for jobs. Hey, does somebody want to come and work in our, you know, we pay them a wage, want to come work this Saturday with us. There are programs set up where people rotate about bringing in meals, hot dinners, um, four days a week different folks sign up to say, okay, I'm going to bring in a hot meal mm -hmm. for 80 people. It's astonishing how many folks want to do this. And what was crazy for me was about three weeks ago, I was invited to come to the Magnolia community, and a group of faith leaders met me and said, we have led an effort, and we have a petition. We want to you to allow that particular tent encampment to stay there. We want to extend the time that they stay there. I tell you, that has never happened to me. Um, we are not going to do that in that location because we promised the neighbors it was going to be a two-year thing. So in order for us to meet the commitment, we're going to find another location mm -hmm. for the encampment to go. But to have a neighborhood come and say, these people have earned the right to stay. Another example last night. Um, at the First Presbyterian Church. The community came together, and there was about 75 or 80 folks that came to the church to learn more about the Navigation Center that is going to be opened there. Now, I was shocked. Every neighborhood meeting I've ever gone to, it's like uh, torches and pitchforks. People come and they're angry, and they're afraid, and when they don't have the knowledge or the information, they fill that gap with what, you know, I call it awfulizing. They're, they're making it as bad or as awful as they can possibly imagine. But what happened is that 
Compass Housing got out front. The Presbyterian Church went door to door and said, we're going to invite people to come in on a 24-7 shelter. Here's what it's going to look like. Um, they met people at the buses and handed out fact sheets that said, this is what's going to happen. So last night was their first open house, the first meeting. There were 75 or 80 people there, and there was not a single person who stood up and complained. And au contraire, <laughs> I was handed um, a, note, a notebook with 20 letters in it of people said, welcome to the community. I support this. Every single person who stood up said, we want to help. How do we help? How do we volunteer? Um, and there are uh, senior living um, facilities in the area. And they all came and said, we're not afraid. We want to get to know these folks. How do we help? Seriously, I was completely blown away because I had never seen that. And that's what I'm saying about, I believe that Seattle's turning a corner. We've learned from other cities. We're taking some of the best ideas. We have Barb Poppy's work where she came and made some recommendations about what we ought to do. And we're building on statistics and evidence-based practices um, from other cities that are working. And now we're on top of this. And is it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, we're still seeing thousands of people who are on our streets. They're, in some cases, they're evident. In some cases, they are not. Mm -hmm. But we have a huge problem. But I'm optimistic that we're beginning to make progress. Those are those are wonderful examples, and and I think that it, what you were saying gets to one of the issues that that I personally struggle with around homelessness, which is that idea of home. That one thing is the structure and having housing first. The other piece is the community <laughs> piece of it. Um, and speaking to people who are experiencing homelessness, I, I think one of the things that they're most often frustrated with is this very felt uh, separation from the surrounding community mm -hmm. um, because they're walking around with their belongings in a bag mm -hmm. or there's a, there's a stigma of class, of uh, drug use, of an abusive situation, whatever it is, there's, there's stigma on top of stigma on top of stigma. So talk to me a little bit more about how those bridges are being built between an, an endemic communities, whether single family, multifamily, what have you, and those uh, encampments or small house communities or what have you. Mm -hmm. So I think that it is true that as relationships are built and trust is established, we understand that the person on the other side of the table or the person inside the tent is just like us. Now, they don't have the resources we do right now, but in almost every occasion that I've had an opportunity to talk, people want, they want to be normalized. Mm -hmm. They want to have a shower. They want to be able to wash their clothes. They want to know and be known. They want to be seen. They don't want to be shunted off in a corner and ignored. So from a standpoint of what can the community do that's different, um, something that happened just this last budget cycle, which I thought was absolutely wonderful, is our parks department, where we've got swimming pools, 
agreed to open up the bathrooms and the showers to people who are homeless mm. to allow them to come in and use the showers. Now, this is costing the city marginally more, whereas we have and pay almost a half a million dollars to something that is called the Urban Rest Stop. And that's great. I'm really glad we have that. It's a nonprofit. It's a place where people can go and take showers and wash their clothes, and they don't have to pay for it. It's just making you a little bit, making you feel better. It's, mm -hmm. a little, it's humanizing, right? But to open up six more locations where people could go and take a shower, um, that didn't cost us six times as much. It just opened up and used our facilities. And initially I heard from a few people, and this is what frust it's frustrating. It's like, I don't want somebody who's homeless showering when I'm showering. I'm going, come on, people. Um, it's just a human being who's trying to get cleaned up. Let's try to provide a little more dignity. So if that was frightening to people, then what I've asked is, well, let's have a monitor in, in the bathroom. But you should have a monitor in the bathroom at all times, right? Um, if that is your conclusion. But trying to provide that that place where people can feel human again and, and make sure that they can wash their clothes, that they also have an opportunity to just feel better and cleaner. But then that takes me to the next thing. How do you communicate home if you can't plug in your cell phone? Mm -hmm. um, well, our public library has done something that I just, my hat is off to Marcellus Turner and to the Library Foundation Board. They actually hired a case manager down at the central library. So when people walk in the door, there's places they can plug in the phones. The computers are free. They're available so that they can look for jobs or contact home. But there's also a case manager there that they can go and talk to. Once again, making it easy, meeting people where they are. It's not a stigma. It's like, how can I help? Right. What can I do to help? Right. And I just think that that, again, is making a difference. Well, it seems, it seems like what the library is doing, what, what the last budget cycle did was really that. It's meeting people where they are and, you know, opening doors wider in, in many ways. And I guess the, the past decade or before the last decade, you know, we've been asking people to come to, to step forward to the table. Um, and it doesn't seem like that has been working particularly well. So yeah. it's wonderful to hear these stories. Um, The city just recently conducted a survey of people who were experiencing homelessness. What did you learn from that? So the actual numbers are coming out um, in the next week or 10 days. But what we know is that the problem is even deeper than we thought. Hmm. Our um, one-night counts, and I've participated in one-night counts for over a decade, um, it's, it was a good thing. It was, it was all we had. And we expanded, you know, from downtown Seattle to out in the neighborhoods and then from Seattle neighborhoods to further in King County around us. And the numbers were high. Um, the numbers that we saw, people that were on the streets or trying to live in their cars and vans. But, of course, you miss a lot of folks because you don't know where they are, right? And if you're experience homeless, experiencing homelessness, you may not want to be found. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did this time was actually hire some people who were then hiring people who had been formerly homeless. Mm. And we went and talked with them. I mean, what a concept. Talk <laughs> to people, right, and ask them what, the, what their issues are or what they need. Um, 
and we found that the numbers were much higher than we had expected right here in Seattle, downtown, and in neighbors um, in neighborhoods. Um, what we do about that now is going to be the challenge of finding out what has worked and what's successful. Um, but frankly, we're going to have to, I believe, open up more of these managed encampments and work harder on our landlord liaison project. Mm -hmm. um, that is another thing you may have a question down there later on, but that's in bringing in the private sector okay. um, entities that, and let's just use our multifamily association as an example. We need to go and talk with landlords and say, we want to enter into a master lease agreement with you. So let's say that, that you guys owned 100 units. I, as a city, might come to you and say, I want to rent five of those units. We might negotiate you know, a slightly reduced price um, or not, but what the benefit you get out of it is I'm going to backstop so that I'm going to assure you that you're going to always get paid your rent. You're not going to have to worry about evicting somebody because they're not behaving right because we're going to take care of counseling and that sort of support so you're not going to have that problem. If somebody has a bad boyfriend that puts his fist through the wall, the city would um, pay out of a risk management pool so that you're made whole all the way along. But for that, we are going to put people in the units, and it would be people that are hard to house. It may be somebody who's just returning from jail. It might be somebody who years ago had a sex offense on his record not somebody who is violent, not somebody who's going to cause you trouble, but somebody who's hard to house. Mm -hmm. If we do that, and if the public sector uh, the public sector can work with the private sector, um, landlords step up and say, it's my responsibility. I'm going to help solve this problem. If I can get a 1,000 landlords across the city to step up and say, I'm going to give you one unit, we can start making a big difference. So, so I, I'll, I'll be provocative and, yeah, and say course. what's the value proposition there like if people who have done crimes people who you know have have fallen out of society or turned right. their back on society in certain ways right why why should the government step up and help them why should the government or why should private sector well both but, but, well it's always a lot more costly um to deal with the downstream than upstream so if you think about an individual who has fallen off um and really has um, let's let's take somebody who's, who has committed a serious crime and is, has been in jail, but the person has just served his 25 years and has paid back his to society. He comes out, he can't get a job, and he can't get a place to live. What's going to happen? I mean, to us as individuals, I mean, he's going to be in survival mode. What do you do? I mean, just imagine yourself in that. You have no credit cards. You have no family. You have no place to go. You've got nothing to fall back on. What are you going to do? You are going to do whatever you can to survive. And that's probably going to mean you're going to steal something. You're going to break into something, someplace. Um, that's what you're going to do. Not that it's morally right, but you're in a, in a position where you have to feed yourself, mm -hmm. where you have to clothe yourself, where and, and you know, and that despair leads to alcohol and drugs. So, f the pushback to me is pretty obvious. You take, we all take care of each other. We try to get our, ourselves into a place where you can be stable. It reduces crime. 
it reduces that sense of cost of going right back into jail or back up to Harborview Hospital, where it's $2,000 a night. That doesn't make any sense at all. $2,000 a night, you can rent the guy an apartment. <laughs> for an entire month. Yeah. Um, going back to the, the survey for just a second, one of the things that I saw in some of the headlines that I read about it was popping um, a couple of myths around people moving here because oh, Seattle is, oh, is pretty generous yeah. with, with yeah. human services. Right. And, and it's other, called Freeattle. Freeattle, yeah. The other piece was the demographics right. of who's experiencing homelessness. I think we probably most often think of, of the gentleman you were just describing, someone who's maybe out of out of uh, prison or is dealing with a drug addiction. Right. But it didn't seem like that was, that was a monolith right. <laughs> by any stretch. No, um, I think that's what... Uh, that particular survey was really surprising. So that was done last fall, and it just came out, um, and a 1,000 people were interviewed. I mean, imagine that. Once again, big shock. Go and talk to people who are homeless and ask them what their stories are and what their needs are, and it wasn't necessarily what we assumed. Excuse me. Um, the notion of free adult is something that we hear all the time. And it's like people come here because everything is free and everything is lovely. Um, neither of those things are true. And what we learned is that most of the people surveyed, 75% of the people surveyed, their last address was Seattle or King County. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Well, if you peel that back five years, maybe they did come here from somewhere else. Most of us who were in Seattle came here from somewhere else. I came from Portland and via Boise and via Moscow, Idaho, right? I came to Seattle because it's a beautiful place, because of job opportunities, because I wanted to be here with friends and family. Most people say, I came to Seattle because of opportunities and because I've got friends and family here. So no big surprise. If you have no money and you're looking for opportunity and you're looking for a job, where are you going to come? Where the job market's good? Where... There is like, I don't know that there's any city in, in the United States that is doing as well as Seattle is right now in terms of job opportunity. That said, it's usually job opportunity for people that have higher education. That's where the big money is. So oftentimes people show up here and they're frustrated because they can't find work. And then that cycle starts. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I, mean, I think that that's one of the things that kind of bowls people over is, in general, in our society, is we have these very stark uh, contrasts in terms right. of income. And totally the tale of two cities. Totally the tale of two cities. So is is that um, a cause of some, of some of the homelessness yes. that we're experiencing? And... Is there a role for those who are doing well to give back in a certain oh, way? Oh, yes. Both, the answer to both, both are absolutely yes. Is it a role? Yes. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm also very interested in working with our school district mm. and our colleges, local colleges, about apprenticeship programs and then starting that upstream work. If you, as a family, can encourage your student to stay in school, and if we, as a school district, um, and look again at the continuum, you don't necessarily have to go to college to have a good job, but that's where our apprenticeship programs were come into play. Um, quick sidebar, last December I went to Hamburg, Germany with a group, and we looked at their 
um, apprenticeship programs, they call it the dual system. So people early on, and, and they're not like forever on a track that they can't get off, but it, they start early on learning the skills they need for the next year, the next year when they get into high school, then they can get an apprenticeship with like a local company like Airbus. That's where we went mm -hmm. to visit. They spend a three on a three-year certificate program where they spend time with their cohorts in the classroom like two or three days a week, and they work on the factory floor at Airbus the other two to three days a week. When they graduate three years, they have no debt because Airbus has paid for them to take their classes. So it's Airbus and it's a uh, college and it's a government subsidy. Mm -hmm. They have no debt. So around here, um, we put ridiculous burdens on students that don't come from families that can afford it or they can't get scholarships that it's almost impossible for people to get through college if you don't come from a money background. So this program and something that I want to emulate here with the great manufacturers we have and with companies like Microsoft, you don't have to be a computer scientist to earn a good wage. There's a lot of coding. There's a lot of things people can do. So if we can move that back upstream so individuals can have good jobs when they get out of high school and a sense of promise, that's something that I've heard from a lot of people who are homeless is like, there's no place for me to go. Mm. I don't know what to do. I met a young kid um, last last Sunday down on the waterfront, and it, um, actually I thought it was a girl um, in a hood and just sort of huddled up, and I sat down to talk to her, um, and it was a him. How long have you been here? Um, I've been on the streets of Seattle for three years. Three years? How old are you? Seventeen. Um, and his family was from Bremerton. He got thrown out, thrown out of his family, living on the streets of Seattle. And you know what that means. I mean, it's prostitution, it's drugs, it's whatever to do once again to survive. And I asked, um, what would you like? He said, I need a job. I want to work. I said, what's your skill set? What do you like? He says, I can't do anything. I said, well, okay, but you can, obviously. You, he looked to me like somebody that we could help. So I got him directed to youth care. Um, and a New Horizons, both of which have apprenticeship programs. Um, and that's what it's going to take. It's one person at a time, get them directed into something that's going to matter to them. Yeah. Um, what, what about the the other side of that, where the private sector, I and mean, you mentioned some of those those bigger firms, like are they helping to step up to the plate oh, in terms of the housing piece of it? Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to give you two big ones. Uh, last, last week... Amazon, who has frankly been um, scolded by people in the community for not stepping up, um, entered into a deal with Mary's Place. And Mary's Place, as you know, is um, a shelter for women and children and families. And Amazon gave them 47,000 square feet forever hmm. for Mary's Place. That is phenomenal. That is a permanent address for Mary's Place. It is up to 200 families that they can shelter. And, and it's bring in, in the Amazon building, and isn't it? Yeah, and their new one, yeah. yeah. And they, um, uh, John Shetler and Jeff Bezos sat down and said, this is something we really want to do. And it was a surprise to Mary's Place because what that company, Amazon, had done for Mary's Place over the last year is to give them a building. It actually happened to have been an old travel lodge. And then many members in the community came in and painted and slicked it up. So there were over 100 families that were there. But 
Mary's Place knew it was temporary. Mary's Place is just super and finding buildings, fixing it up, and making places for people for now. It's not a permanent housing, but it's housing for now. But now they've got a place in Amazon where they can stay. And it is, again, it's not permanent places for families. It's, it's home for now where people can come, get stabilized, get the services they need, and then hopefully move up and on. So um, Amazon did that, and then just a couple of weeks before that, the uh, Paul Allen Family Foundation donated $30 million to Mercy Housing to do something similar to what Amazon has done. Um, don't know the location yet, don't know exactly what it's going to be, but the goal for the Paul Allen Family Foundation was to fill the gaps. What are the gaps that need to be filled here in the community to help, again, address this problem? I can imagine a small business owner or medium-sized business owner kind of hearing those stories and one, applauding those bigger organizations, right. but also saying, saying, I can't do that. Exactly. I don't have that kind of money. Well, there is room for everybody in this in this whole continuum. Um, the tiny homes, you've seen those, uh, just to clarify what they are. Listeners right. Them, yeah. They are 8 by 12. They're um, little homes with windows and a door and a peaked roof and a place where people can have a bed and have places to hang up and lock their stuff. Um, usually there's no running water. Um, there might be electricity if people are fortunate enough to have a place where they can plug in. But they're one step better than being in a tent. They're, they're a little bit warmer. They're a little bit drier, but you can lock the door so you can protect your belongings. So Many volunteers are starting to build these tiny homes and bring them to our managed encampments. And by the way, if anybody's interested, yes, we can use 90 more. <laughs> um, and just a couple of weeks ago, a group of union workers got together and said, we're going to build a couple on a Saturday. And so I joined them. They had everything organized. They had the lumber. They had the insulation. They had everything that was needed to build that. And a group of us built two of these tiny homes, up to the roof um, by noon. Hmm. And then um, the previous month, there was a group that was down in Olympia. And here's another story that I just love. Um, a Republican legislator who happens to be a friend of mine um, called me last fall and said, we're going to have a competition. We're going to ask high school programs and community college programs if they would like to design tiny homes just to see what could be available and what people could come up with. So this last September, he said, hey, would you like some? And they thought they were going to have 15. I said, oh, my goodness, you know, 15 homes? Absolutely, yes. He said, I don't know how we're going to get them up to you. And I said, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out. So it ended up there were 21 teams. 21 teams built these homes and from all over the state, you know, Puyallup High School in Aberdeen in the community college. And they are beautiful, and they are just lovely. And uh, Sharon Lee from the Low Income Housing Institute uh, worked with Boeing and with the Teamsters and some other companies to put them on trucks, you know, had a forklift come up, pick them up, bring them up to Seattle, and they put them up in our newest managed encampment up on Licton Springs. So 20 and potentially 40 if you had a partner. 40 people can be up there and now are dry and have their their uh, belongings locked in. Once again, it's stability. Those things cost $2,400 delivered. Mm. Now, I'm not pretending for a second that this is 
the permanent solution. But if you think of the continuum of what we're trying to accomplish, those tiny homes are exactly along the line of it's better than being in the mud and you've got a place to be and then you can get yourself together and you can move up and on with your life. So what's what's the role of public space in this conversation? Oh, before I get to that question, I want to circle back to the to the little business. You said, what about the little business guy? Yeah. The little business guy can donate some money. The little business can offer to have a place, maybe even in his garage, where he can open up for an individual or a family. Um, that is part of what we're really looking at now as, pe- as people's creativity. There is um, a guy in town, Rex Holbein, who you may know. Uh, Rex, an architect, he's designed an idea called block. And God bless him for this. His notion is that he's going to create um, a unit that can be built for not a lot of money, can um, go almost as self-sufficient because it's going to work with solar panels, it's going to use rainwater, it's going to have places to flush gray water, or in the case of tying into the sewer lines, it can do that but to be able to put that in people's backyards. So it's a detached uh, accessory dwelling unit. Um, and then people within that block come around to help support that mm-hmm. individual. He already has five families that want to do this. And you start getting that involved in a neighborhood where people go, oh, that's cool. I want one of those. I want to help. I can bring somebody in. And it might not be forever, but it might be for three months, six months, a year. And that in... Um, the private sector and in neighborhoods is something that I think holds some possibility. Mm-hmm. And again, there is no silver bullet here, but there is silver buckshot. <laughs> I like it. So the role of the, the public sector though, right. and the and public lands in right. general in solving this. Um, a very good question. Now, people got pretty um, grumpy about tents in parklands, mm-hmm. tents on school property. Um, seriously, people came out of the woodwork on that one, and I my inbox was filled with a thousand a week. It was it all was, all on the negative all on side the negative the side. Yep, um, but there is public property that is underutilized, um, and I'm very interested in seeing some other options. You know about these modulars now. There are several companies that are making modulars that that if you think about a container off a container ship, but they're not ugly they now you've you've insulated them you've made them look kind of cool and there was one that um was on display at westlake park just a couple weeks ago and it's great that's 160 square feet with a full-on bathroom with lights with full insulation when the door closed it was quiet and we were right on a very busy street so you can put a couple in there very easily and those cost about seventy thousand dollars built and delivered I want to use some public property. Um, Seattle Housing Authority right now, we're talking with them about um, some space that was too small for a big housing complex. Mm -hmm. But shoot, you could put 10 or 15 modular units on there. Um, We've got some property right now that unfortunately, it just does not seem like we're going to be able to use it. But it's down on on Elliott. But it's it's zoned um, industrial. So... You can't put permanent housing in an industrial zone. But there are other parcels around here. Uh, King County, and I want to give a huge shout-out to uh, John Arthur Wilson, who is our county-elected assessor, who his first day on the job went through and looked at all 
of the city and the county parcels of property that we owned and said, well, why couldn't we put a couple of units here? Why couldn't we put a couple of units over here? And I think that's what exactly another one of the silver buckshot. What can we do? Well, let's look and see if there's underutilized property. As soon as it gets to be Seattle City Light or Seattle Public Utilities, um, we can't give away property. That's, you know, the ratepayers have paid it. We have to get fair market value. But over time, if we look at some of these little parcels, there might be something from um, Metro Transit or from SDOT that they can't really use. They don't have the same restrictions as the utilities do to get fair market value. So um, it's another opportunity where we can put some of these modulars. Let's try it. Sure. Um, well, I want to close off with, with one question that I, I think that you've probably learned a ton over the last five, seven years. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I always see when you appear in the paper is you speaking to people experiencing homelessness. And think back you know, to when you started this job and what have you learned about homelessness that has surprised you the most? What is the myth? What is the stigma out there that just got to pop for you um, and just, you know, took the blinders off? Yeah, I, I think that people want to be loved and respected. Every individual that I ran into wants to be a whole human being. Mm. And somebody who is addicted to drugs, if you can give them a pathway off, whether that's buprenorphine or methadone, I haven't found anybody yet who says, I really like shooting up, I feel real good. They don't. They don't at all. They've, um, they're, they're in a spin cycle of, waking up in the morning and feeling that desperation of I've got to get another hit or another to whatever dose they're taking of whatever drug they're on. Um, and if we can provide people a dignified way to get off, um, they want to get off. And if we can find them a home where they can uh, get stabilized, they want that. Um, and if you think, well, why should <laughs> I hear this sometimes? Why should I pay for somebody else's apartment? Well, if you don't help them get up and move on, you're going to pay for them in jail, or you're going to pay for them at Harborview, and that's your taxes. And that is not a reasonable investment. So, really, for me, it's I want to care for people, and I also respect expect people to respect themselves enough that they're going to try to do something different. If it's not working now, let's try something different. Hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIG, SVR, and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at the Sound of Y V E. S. dot com. <laughs> <laughs>